Welcome to Socially Responsible Business with host Sharon Schneider. Over the next hour, you'll learn how to succeed financially while using your business as a force for good and spend differently without spending more. Now, here is Sharon. Welcome to today's episode of Socially Responsible Business. I'm your host, Sharon Schneider, a social impact advisor, serial entrepreneur, author, and speaker. Thank you so much for joining us to hear some practical ideas, big and small, for how to improve your business through social responsibility. The core belief behind Socially Responsible Business, this show, is that you can actually be more successful, more profitable, more influential, as well as happier and more personally fulfilled when you make choices that are not just good for you, the entrepreneur or business owner, but good for your employees, your vendors, your customers, your community, and the environment. A few weeks ago, we talked about untapped and overlooked talent and the beautiful opportunity that you have to see people through the lens of their potential, not through the lens of their difficulties. If you missed that show, be sure to go back and check it out wherever you get your podcasts. It features Maria Kim, CEO of Red F, and Lauren McCann, founder and CEO of Procure Impact. And those women drop a lot of knowledge and goodness in about 48 minutes. So you can find the link to their organizations and some of my reflections at www.theintegratedlife.com. So today we're going to dive a little deeper into one particular group of overlooked talent, folks with an arrest record. Here is some background information from the Sentencing Project, and you can find this at theintegratedlife.com if you want to see more and their whole report, but I'm just going to read you this sort of summary paragraph. The United States is the global leader in incarceration. Today, more than 1.5 million Americans are incarcerated in state and federal prisons, a figure that has quintupled since 1980. Adding in jails, the number of Americans who are behind bars rises to 2.2 million. One in three U.S. adults has been arrested by age 23. Communities of color, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender individuals, and people with histories of abuse or mental illness are disproportionately affected. As a result, between 70 million and 100 million, or as many as one in three Americans, have some type of criminal or arrest record. Having even a minor criminal record, such as a misdemeanor or even an arrest without conviction, can create an array of lifelong barriers that stand in the way of successful reentry. This has broad implications for individuals and families' economic security, as well as for our national economy. Mass incarceration and hypercriminalization serve as major drivers of poverty. Having a criminal record can present obstacles to employment, housing, public assistance, education, family reunification, building good credit, and more. That's a lot. That's a hell of a situation we find ourselves in. And now think about this. You and your business can be part of the solution. And my guest today is going to help us bust some myths and paint a picture of how to successfully incorporate fair chance hiring into your employee success story, which becomes your business success story. Ken Oliver is Vice President of Corporate Social Responsibility at Checker Inc. and the Executive Director of the Checker Foundation, Checker's 501c3 Corporate Foundation. 
Checker's mission is building a fair future of work by designing technology for all, while its foundation seeks to reshape the narrative and provide pathways to sustainable employment for those Americans who suffer from an arrest and conviction record. Ken's professional expertise spans the landscape of philanthropy, DE&I, clean slate, talent development, change management, and public policy. In 2020, he co-founded and became the executive director of a nonprofit organization where he designed an innovative reentry model focused on providing justice-impacted justice-impacted individuals with career pathways in tech and the knowledge-based economy. He then led an effort that secured a $28.5 million investment from the state of California to build the first-of-its-kind residentially-based tech training campus in the country. Ken, welcome to Socially Responsible Business. Thank you for having me, Sharon. It's a pleasure to be here. So I just gave a brief overview of your background, and I skipped over some key aspects of your story because I want to let you tell your own story, which is quite extraordinary. Can you walk us through a little bit more of your background? Sure. Um, you know, I get this question a lot, especially in when it comes to social impact and philanthropy. People ask me, how did I get into philanthropy and social impact? And I, and I definitely had a career pathway that I wouldn't recommend to most people. Um <laughs> because this career pathway that I took actually took me through a exodus of 24 years in prison in the California prison system, almost 10 of those years in solitary confinement. And when I was released from prison in 2019, I found myself um, being a paralegal at a par uh, uh, public interest law firm. And then shortly thereafter became a state policy director where I really cut my teeth on public policy, working with California legislators in the governor's office around criminal justice reform. Um, California imprisons more people than any other state. And so being on the front end of those reforms, building relationships and coalitions on how we can make um, California safer and transform lives in the process was really important to me. It was really during that core work that one of my responsibilities was to educate companies here in the San Francisco Bay Area around ban the box or what they call the Fair Chance Act. And the Fair Chance Act, for those listeners who don't know, is legislation that began sweeping the country, starting with the Obama administration, that prohibited employers from asking whether someone had been arrested or convicted of a crime when they applied for a job. The, the purpose of that was primarily because of the discrimination that occurred. Typically, if you checked the box on the application that you had a conviction or arrest history, you would be similar, sum, summarily denied most of the time employment. So the government attempted to legislate fairness into employer decisions. And so during that process, I really learned a lot about the workforce development system, um, worked a lot with CHROs across the country around things like ban the box and, and really started to understand that there were several problems at play that needed to be addressed. And that's and, Chief Human Resource Officers, CHROs. Yes, yes, it is. Thank you for that. Um, and so it, it boiled down to three kind of things or what I call flywheels. And that is, first, there's a huge skills gap. Um, in general, but that's exacerbated, you know, um, multifold when it comes to people who've been involved with the justice system. So, for example, there are many people who have been incarcerated who have never picked up a smartphone before. They've never logged into a Google account. They've never banked online. 
And so if you're asking people to become part of the knowledge-based economy and get into the tech sector, it's very difficult if people don't have fundamental skills that today most kids know by the time they leave elementary school. And so I, I worked on designing a program around that and then started thinking about, well, if we're able to close the skills gap, how do we work with employers to kind of demystify the narrative around what it means to have a record? Because so many people have it, as you mentioned at the, at the top of the show. And so it really became a passion of mine on educating C-suite and C-staff and CHROs, as you mentioned, and, and other players in the DNI space about this huge swath of the American population who has an arrest record. And, and what does that mean? And what doesn't it mean in many cases, right? And so I started working on that. And then the third piece of the, the flywheel is, is kind of public policy. And what can public policymakers do to A, help people pathway into livable wage employment and then also uh, incentivize businesses to help hire those people. So that's kind of how I got into the work. Um, and as you mentioned, I was able to secure a pretty large historic investment from the state of California to build out some of these programming models that I mentioned. And then in 2021, I was asked to lead corporate social responsibility and social impact for Checker, the largest um, background check company in America. And also they wanted me to form a corporate foundation, which I did for them in, in 2021. And we've been chugging along ever since. Checker is one of those tech unicorns most people have never heard of. And we'll talk in a little bit about what Checker actually does. But, you know, I wanted to share all of your accomplishments and credentials before kind of you know, pointing out your own history of incarceration, because I think people make a lot of assumptions about what people who've been incarcerated are capable of and what they are like. And meeting someone, if you start with, hi, I'm Ken, I've been behind bars for 24 years, you get a different reception than if you start with, you know, hi, here's all my accomplishments. Oh, and by the way, Hey, that's part of my story, and that was part of my journey, but that doesn't define who I am. And so I, I wonder, do you consider yourself an anomaly? Are you, you know, I, I think you're undoubtedly extraordinary, but are you an anomaly, or, or are you a, a good example of what people who have been incarcerated are actually capable of? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great question, and it's something that, that I get accused of all the time, and also I fight against all the time, and that's that I am an anomaly. And, and, and rea the reality is, is that I'm not. And one of the reasons I fight so hard and why I'm dedicated my life to this work is to show and to prove that there's tens of thousands of men and women who have made a mistake. Sometimes there's tens of thousands of women that have, men and women who've made two mistakes. And sometimes people have even made three mistakes. And who would ever thought that humans could make two or three mistakes in their life, right? And some of those mistakes are more egregious than others. But I will say after visiting most of the higher education institutions in this country, Ivy League, Stanford, Berkeley, Harvard, and also being at several California prisons during my 24-year stay, some of the smartest, brightest people that I've ever met are actually behind the wall serving time in prison. And so really, when you analyze that and you peel back the layers, okay, well, how can that be? It's, it really boils down to opportunity. It boils down to environment. It boils down to demographics. And, and many people who never had the what I call a sandbox to play in, like most middle-class Americans, typically believe that they only have a certain amount of choices and they reflect usually what's happening in the communities around them. It doesn't take away from their brilliance. Like, 
some of the some people have like created whole empires of stuff that you know is against the law because they're brilliant right and so so what i like to share with people is that a when you take some of those same people and you teach them product management or you teach them engineering or you teach them marketing or you teach them hr or talent recruitment these become some of your star employees because now they can take their aptitude and their brightness and apply that in a more positive, constructive way and actually enhance and add value to a business. Well, it's a it's a great point. And, and I think that just like every other population, there's a massive spectrum from those who are capable of becoming vice presidents and software engineers to, as you said, those who struggle with technology because they it, it sort of is it's never been part of their life not that they can't learn but certainly where they're starting from today perhaps and so you know there's there's maybe a, again an assumption that people with a record are you know only suited for warehousing jobs for example um, but you and some of the programs you're involved with are certainly a model of way more diversity. And uh, I believe you're still on the board of The Last Mile, which is a um, an organization that I'm, I'm familiar with that did some outcomes-based funding and was really innovative in the California prison system. Can you share a little bit about that? Sure. So The Last Mile is an innovative program that started maybe 15 years ago now in a California prison in San Quentin. And the idea behind that program, Chris Redlitz and Beverly Parenti, shout out to them for starting that program. They were venture capitalists and went into San Quentin prison and thought they could teach guys how to be entrepreneurs. And that quickly morphed into after they did a whole Shark Tank style thing and they brought in Silicon Valley VCs and all types of folks um, that were investors. They then said, these people are so sharp. These people have some of the best business plans they've ever seen, including Y Combinator business plans. These folks can learn coding and engineering. And so they started a coding and engineering program in San Quentin that's now spanned to seven states. And Checker, as a matter of fact, we've hired several people from the Last Mile program. They've populated companies like PayPal and Zoom and some of the biggest tech companies in Silicon Valley, Slack, et cetera. And it really is just a testament to when you invest in people. And I'm going to use two P words here. When you invest in people over punishment and when you invest in people over profits, what you see is this amazing blossoming that occurs when you embrace humanity. Who would ever thought that if you actually like lift people up and pour into them that you'd get a positive result, right? Um, because we're, we're so fixated oftentimes that these that these other things, these other tangible things that we see that we forget that, you know, behind every, behind all of the products, behind all of the other stuff, there's a human being at work. And if we invest in those people, usually you get a great outcome. That's what, you know, data shows historically. And before we go to break, I want to take a minute and talk about language and the and the sort of language choices. You know, this, this area used to be called second chance hiring when I first kind of was working in workforce development organizations. And uh, it's more recently, as you noted with the California law, been called fair chance hiring. What do you think is the difference and, and why does it matter? Well, it's interesting. It did start off as second chance. And then that term over the last decade has become a little bit more politicized because in many circles, people believe that a lot of people that populate the prison system have never been given the first chance even before they got to prison, number one. Number two, there's this notion like second chances if a person was only allowed to make one mistake in life. And it's interesting because in the tech sector and in other businesses, they teach us fail and fail fast and fail many times in order to get to the positive result. 
And that's when it comes to things that really don't matter. Things that die like cell phones and pieces of silverware. And can you turn a glass into 19 different objects and all of that? But we don't always extend that grace to human humans and human behavior. And so it's really interesting that people started using that term second chance. And so recently in the last five or six years, people have more started to migrate towards fair chance. In other words, let's just talk about fairness. And fairness is, is giving everybody an opportunity to be the, their best authentic selves. And that's what I believe in, giving everybody a fair chance to be the best version of themselves. Well, and it feels like it includes everyone. Fair chance is about every kind of opportunity too, right? Not just those with a arrest record. Um, so I really like that term as well. Yes, 100%. Yeah. You're listening to Socially Responsible Business. I'm your host, Sharon Schneider. My guest today is Ken Oliver, Vice President of Corporate Social Responsibility at Checker and Executive Director of the Checker Foundation. When we come back, Ken will give us the keys to implementing a fair chance hiring program in your business. Stay tuned. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. If you're a business owner who wants to use the power of free enterprise to not just help yourself and your own family, but your employees, your community, and the world at large, then tune in to Socially Responsible Business. Host Sharon Schneider, a serial entrepreneur and impact advisor to some of the world's most prominent families, will help you uncover all the ways you can succeed financially while using your business as a force for good. Every show will include practical ideas and tools that you can implement right away. And it's not about spending more money. It's about thinking and spending differently. Socially Responsible Business, hosted by Sharon Schneider. Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome back to Socially Responsible Business with Sharon Schneider. Have a question for Sharon or her guests? Email her at Sharon at the integrated Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the show. I'm Sharon Schneider host of Socially Responsible Business. And my guest today is VP of Corporate Social Responsibility at Checker, Ken Oliver. So Ken, tell us a little about the company you work for, um, Checker. What does Checker's background check help focus on people's potential? Sure. Well, it's, it's kind of counterintuitive because background checks by their nature were originally used as tools 
of exclusion. So 95% of companies and businesses in America do background checks. And most of the time, people believe that they're supposed to be used to weed people out, right? Whether they whether it's people who have arrest records or some other kind of um, thing. Um, we kind of choose a different route here at Checker. Like we, we started out as an HR tech company. Our primary focus is, is background checks, even though we have a lot of other HR products. But we really focus talking to our customers about using background checks as tools for inclusion, not exclusion. And what I mean by that is that we know that behind the piece of paper that comes through on the background check, every single piece of paper, there's a human story. And so we actually created a product called Candidate Stories. And so when someone's background check comes back with a mark on it or something that is considered to be adverse, we encourage all of our customers to go to the Candidate Story portal and encourage that particular candidate to submit a story that talks about the circumstances around that particular incident that appears on the background check. We believe that that catalyzes fairness, it catalyzes conversations. Um, one, you know, I'm always fond of telling this story. I get a chance to, to talk to companies all across the country about implementing fair chance hiring. And, and an example of, of why this works is there was a woman who on the background check, she was a middle-aged black woman who um, had did 16 years in prison for attempted murder. And when I teach, I show executives that background check and, you know, wholesale most people say every person says they would not hire that person because most companies want to shy away from things that they consider to be violent um, we hear that all the time and so you know i said okay that's that's fair no one wants to hire this person and then i go on continue to teach and then usually later on in the workshop i show a video of a woman who was the victim of domestic violence she had had her job broken had suffered a decade worth of abuse from her boyfriend uh, her skull had been fractured. Her son's arm had been broken by this um, abuser. And finally, one day after a decade of abuse, she had gotten fed up and, and shot him. Didn't kill him, but shot him. And the court ruled that because he wasn't attacking her at the time, she thought that he was going to attack her because she had been a victim, that it was an attempted murder. And this woman was a registered nurse, had been a practicing registered nurse for years as, as part of her career, and then went to prison for 16 years. And when she got out, she could not find employment. Finally, she result, she resigned to taking a job at Wendy's for a minimum wage and was flipping hamburgers. And she was telling the story to one of her friends um, at a grocery store and a gentleman behind her heard her telling the story and uh, offered to help her and put her in a job at a blood laboratory where she could rely on her medical experience. And so when I show the video of her testimony and her story, I asked the same set of executives, how many people would hire this particular person? And every single one of them they shoot their arm up before I can even get done with the sentence and say they'd love to hire that person. And I said, well, this is the same person 45 minutes ago that you said that you wouldn't mm -hmm. hire circumstances. And so what it demonstrates is, is that when you actually listen to the power of human story, you get a completely different context. It's, it's one of the reasons why I like to say my background after I have a conversation with people, because then it, it shocks them so much that they would have never imagined that I came from prison. I said, well, I'm just one of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who have the same potential and possibility if we take off those shades of explicit bias that we carry around based on the narratives we've been told from media, et cetera, and so forth. So um, we really go out of our way um, with our customers and with prospects uh, out there in the business community to show that background checks can be something used, they can be used for things other than just excluding people from the workforce. And are there other factors that Checker 
sort of uses to narrow down, you know, what kind of like rather than a black and white, either you have some kind of record and you're out or you have no record and you're in, you know, are there shades of gray? For example, you know, my understanding is the time that is elapsed, the more time that's elapsed since your crime, for example, or your arrest, the less likely you are. Or, you know, if it happened when you were young, like we all know your brain isn't developed till you're 26. So it kind of feels like anything from before then, you know, is a different circumstance than something that happened when you're 35. Or, you know, the type of crime, is there is there sort of built in other forms of nuance? Sure. Well, I mean, for those people who don't know, the the federal government, the EEOC, has actually set out guidelines around discriminating against people with records. And they put out a test. And you can go on the government website, the EEOC website, and you'll see the test. It's called nature times nature. So the nature of the crime times how much time has gone by since the crime was committed Mm. versus whether the nature of the job. So you take that information, you juxtapose it against what job is the person applying for. So, for example, if a person had a history of theft, even if it was 10 or 15 years old and it happened, they happened to apply for a job as a bank teller, then that would be a pretty good sign that you may not want to hire that person. But if the person is, is applying for a job as a truck driver or a forklift operator or a mason, that wouldn't really have anything to do with the theft-related charge that they may have went to prison for or suffered the conviction for. And so the, the 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 government really sets this out and says we shouldn't be discriminating against people because they have records. There's a test. And so Checker didn't invent this test. We followed the test. And what we believe is that if you follow the test and you have an adjudication committee or an adjudicator who's well-versed and educated um, and they follow those guidelines, most of the time there's reasons for to screen people in rather than screen people out. And you have sort of shared before that the antidote to sort of the risk, if you will, if if businesses look at it as, you know, there's a risk of recidivism or a risk of hiring people with an arrest record, you said the antidote to that risk is living wage employment. Can you explain that? Yeah, 100%. And so... You know, contrary to belief, we, we look at things so much in black and white in America. It's like either or black versus white. And that's not really the case when it comes to people who've been convicted or have arrest records. What the data shows is the number one driver of mass incarceration recidivism is poverty. And so when people don't have access to things that we take for granted every day, then they can't self-determine that there's a whole bunch of things that grow out of that soil substance abuse, stress, mental illness, when you can't feed yourself or your family, tendencies to be short and have lack of patience, which ends up in violence in many cases, right? Um, Theft, selling drugs, all these different things grow out of a circumstance of the have nots. And so you take those very same people and you say, okay, here's a job paying livable wage, $30, $40 an hour, whatever the number is based on the geography they live in. And those very same people, but now all of a sudden become model citizens. They now have a stake in the game. They have something to lose. They have their dignity back and sense of self. They can provide for their kids. They can provide for their wives or husbands, whatever the situation is. And they have a place they can hang their hat and earn a living, pay a car note, put food in the refrigerator, do all of the things that we've all been taught since we were children is the American middle-class dream. And so that's really the differentiator. 
And when we look at the data, people who make over $50,000 a year, who have a, some type of history, they never return back to prison. Who would ever thought it, right? They, they now can pay all their bills and all the rest of that. People who are subjected to non-livable wages or unsustainable wages, especially in places like the Bay Area or LA County or New York or these places that are expensive to live, that stress builds up over time. And the data actually tracks to show rearrests happen when that when those stresses become too heavy. So that's really the great equalizer is, is livable wage. So I encourage employers, let's not just think about entry level below poverty line wages. Let's think about how we can pathway people into livable wage careers where they can build and provide for themselves and their communities. Um, and we do that in a lot of ways, whether it's paid internship program to give people experience, apprenticeship programs, full FTE assignments and investing in people's education through learning and development budgets, et cetera. There's a lot of ways to do that. And, you know, my friends and colleagues who work with this population also tell me that while like the attorney general or the, the, you know, justice system will cite statistics that the recidivism rate is something like 50%, you know, meaning 50% of people who come out will go back um, uh, to prison. The, uh, that actually that the majority of that recidivism is about parole violations. So, you know, they, they lack transportation or they don't communicate with their parole officer or, you know, something. It's not committing another crime. It's not, you know, that they went and robbed a, a you know, a store. It, it's more like a, a paperwork, <laughs> you know, a bureaucracy uh, violation. They, they call it the paper prison because there's so many technical violations that occur. You didn't report on time or you didn't test on time um, or you got caught smoking a joint. Now all of a sudden they're returning you back to custody. Um, again, you know, what we've seen in, in most of the programs, you mentioned one of them last mile, when you look at these programs that give people skills, right? And people for the first time can say they know how to code and they can tell their mother or father that they now have this certification, right? Whether it's welding or whatever. And when you take those same people and you give them access to jobs, all of those other things that like people coping, I call them coping mechanisms, very negative coping me coping mechanisms. And that doesn't excuse anyone who's ever been a victim of a crime or any of that. I'm, I'm not excusing that. I'm saying most of those things go away because now you you are you are faced with having to make a different set of choices. And you actually have something to lose, which is your salary, your career, your apartment, your house, your car, et cetera, versus when you have nothing to lose then you may be more willing to make those nihilistic type choices that not only harm yourself and your family, but also harm other people in some cases. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's a great point. Um, there. And so, so what preventive measures, I mean, as an employer, if you have folks on your team that, you know, are dealing with this, what kinds of supports or preventive measures can you put in place to help them avoid getting caught, you know, in some of these traps? Sure. Well, well, the first thing we teach companies is to make sure you have your HR policies up to speed the same way you do when you have paternal leave and all the rest of that. And we, and we also encourage them to provide support mechanisms during onboarding. So A, when you hire justice impacted folks or folks who may have been incarcerated, the first thing you want to do is inquire about the, if there's any skill deficit, they have to perform a specific job. So doing something like sending a Gmail or an Outlook, if people are using Outlook, can be challenging for someone who's never used the G Gmail system or the Outlook system. They may not know how to work all of the nuances and employers can sometimes take those things for granted. And so what we do at Checker and what we teach others to do is let's make sure at the onset, we do an aptitude test to see where people are at. And if people need those types of trainings, 
for G Suite or Microsoft or whatever, we encourage people to put small three-week, four-week training programs for digital literacy into their onboard. This is this even applies to like mechanics jobs. This applies to any kind of job out there. People need to know how to send email. Right. And so so let's equip people and support people to make sure they have the necessary mechanisms to be set up for success, because that's what that's what I think everybody wants is to set people up for success, not only for the individual, but also for the business. We want the business to have Mm. an employee that knows how to succeed. Right. Um, So it's a both and not really an either or. And what about any sort of HR policies, um, you know, that might facilitate or might help um, folks that that. Uh, companies should be considering or making sure that they have in place to support people. Sure. One of one of the primary ones is making sure people have access to be able to go to a parole or probation visit. And so many times a probation or parole officer won't want to come to the job site. And most employers don't want probation or parole officers coming to the job site. So if a probation or parole officer, and I and I would I would just tell you from experience, they can be very unreasonable. It doesn't matter if it's in the middle of the day. They'll say, you need to be down here at such and such a day. They don't care about your boss, your employer, your manager. And so building in policies where people have a mechanism to say, I have to go for two hours to go downtown or go to wherever the place is to check in and and, and report or take, in some instances, a drug test if, if that's a requirement that they have to do. So building that into your HR policies. Another key piece is, is making sure you protect people's privacy, right? No, No one has a microscope or a lens into most private employees' previous life, right, outside of employment. The same is true whether someone has an arrest record or not. That That's not something we should be exposing other employees to. That should be held tightly within the HR department with the HR managers and, and possibly maybe the manager of that particular individual if it's, if it's appropriate. Um, now, if, if employees want to self-declare, and share with their teams or their management what their history is, then that's great. Like people should be able to be authentic and be honest about who they are. At the same time, people's privacy should be respected. Um, I was training with one company and one company um, who was just an amazing, amazing tech company. They had a manager that actually Googled somebody and didn't like the outcome of the Google that the person had been arrested before and then done some time in prison and made such a big like, thing over it. And the the COO of the company said, listen, we have a vetting process through HR. We built these things in. We know which people are going on what teams and we trust that process. Like this person has been thoroughly vetted. And if you don't like that, right, then maybe you don't fit into the culture. And they ended up firing this manager because he persisted in like being toxic and, and giving the employee a hard time. And I thought it was so amazing, right? That they actually chose the side of the underdog, the person that was being bullied, the person that was like being victimized instead of the status quo of taking the person who was like graduated from Stanford and was being, you know, a jerk about somebody's background and treating somebody poorly. So there are those circumstances. And those are just a few of the things that employers can do to help support all of their employees, whether it's a person with disabilities, whether it's a person with neurodiversity, doesn't matter the group. That's That's exactly, that's exactly what I was going to say, Ken, which is that the things you're describing feel to me like someone that had a medical issue would benefit from those same policies, had to go see doctors, a parent that might have unexpected or any caregiver, right, that had unexpected things come up 
during their day and they they had to have a mechanism to deal with them. So it's it's the curb cut analogy, right? Where where lots of people benefit from these same kinds of policies and what we think of as special accommodation is not really special. It really is is good for everybody and it's good for the company. 100%. You're, yeah, yeah. You're listening to Socially Responsible Business on the Voice America Radio Network. I'm your host, Sharon Schneider, and my guest today is Ken Oliver, VP of Corporate Social Responsibility at Checker. When we come back, we'll talk about some success stories around fair chance hiring. Stay tuned. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Tune in to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program to discover exactly what to consider with your money now in light of the current economic and investing environment. Host Dennis Tubergen, a four-time best-selling author and consultant to the financial industry, analyzes the current investing climate and interviews some of the brightest minds on the planet in the fields of investing, economics, and finance. Weekly episodes of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program available at 12 p.m. Pacific time on the Voice America Business Channel. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Challenges in the workplace and within teams are only increasing as companies struggle to transition to a post-COVID-19 remote work situation. These unstable times have stretched companies and their leaders beyond their capacity, and they do not know how to maintain a balance of authority, empathy, compassion, and assertiveness toward their coworkers, much less continue their own career trajectory. Leading with Intention with Monique Gagnon offers support, encouragement, and tools to help corporate leaders address their personal shortcomings and emerge from these unprecedented times as well-rounded, self-assured leaders. Leading with Intention, Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome back to Socially Responsible Business with Sharon Schneider. Have a question for Sharon or her guests? Email her at Sharon at theintegratedlife.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. I'm Sharon Schneider, host of Socially Responsible Business. Thanks for being with us today. And thanks to my guest, Ken Oliver, Vice President of Corporate Social Responsibility at Checker, a tech company that is working toward a fair future for everyone. Um, Ken, tell us some success stories. What companies are doing a great job with giving people opportunity? Sure. Well, there, there's so many out there, but I'll just name a couple. Um, one of the most notable ones is J.P. Morgan Chase and, and the effort that Jamie Dimon has led over the last four years. Um, 10% of all J.P. Morgan Chase's hires over the last three years have been either formerly incarcerated people or people with records. 
um, that equates to about 4,300 hires per year. And so when you think about the sheer volume of white collar jobs that J.P. Morgan Chase has hired is really counterintuitive to what you think when you think about the biggest banking institution in the Western Hemisphere. And it, it takes a lot of gumption for a CEO to lead with that type of audacity and to, to have the company in general adopt that culturally, but they have. And so they're one of the, the best examples. And, and one of the things that they do that's really inspiring is not only do they hire folks, but they actually have started a whole policy division and they lobby the federal government to unwind old legacy policies that prohibited people with records getting into the financial institutions and working. And their, their premise was, and is that if a person is not directly touching money, then why should they be prohibited from working in the banking institution? So when you think about all of the different divisions in a business, HR, marketing, customer success, I mean, and the list goes on, right? There, there are so many different business levers that people could work in. And so they've been very successful at unwinding a lot of laws at the federal level to allow people to get into financial institutions. So that's that's one example um, that's really and tell us tell us about Checker itself as a fair chance employer. So presumably you aren't the only employee uh, who has an <laughs> arrest record, uh, but they found you. Tell us about some of their other successes. Yeah, sure. So Checker, interestingly enough, started Fair Chance Hiring in 2015 before it was really um, fashionable, if you will, or became a movement. And they did that because both of their founders were these guys from France who like didn't have these traditional notions of American politics. They hadn't been indoctrinated with this bad guy, good guy mm. type. And what they noticed when they started selling background checks to some of the biggest companies in America was that the adverse actions and rejections had a disproportionate impact on black and brown applicants. And so what they, and people with records. And so what they said to themselves, these are these young 26, 27 year old guys, is that we're going to hire someone from prison and show that if you give this person an opportunity, they'll be a great employee. So they hired somebody who got out of 15 years in prison. They hired that person in 2015 who's still with the company today. And that person has just been a roaring success. And so with that, they said, okay, let's keep doing it. And so they eventually got to the point where we are now where 5% of our employees out of 1,300 employees are fair chance hires, which is amazing. Uh, we have people up and down every part of the business vertical, several engineers, several people in marketing, product development, HR, talent, and then me as an executive at the company. Um, so they've really just done an amazing job. And then even last year, we started our inaugural apprenticeship program, where now not only will we hire people straight as FTEs, we are now training people and putting them on teams to give people opportunities. So the apprenticeship program is half education. It's an earn and learn model where we pay for their education and put them on teams for a whole year so they get practical work experience while they're going through the apprenticeship program. So it's it's really something that we believe in as part of our social impact strategy and, and company mission is we have to prove it and walk the walk ourselves. And then we go straight to our customers and say, look what we've done. We want you to do the same thing. This is going to help your business. It's going to increase your bottom line, all of the things uh, that I know you want to talk about in reference to business case. Well, I do want to talk about that. Can you share a little bit? Do you guys have stats about how fair chance hiring policies improve your business results? Yeah, 100%. So, you know, most of the things that C-suite and C-executives want to know about, they want to know about the business case, right? And so, number one, it's a great 
business additive when you think about DEI and social impact. So that, that's one piece that it does wonders on, but it also does wonders on the bottom line. So the cost of attrition, um, as you know, can be two to three years of someone's salary. Um, in tech, it's about nine months to a year. That can be very expensive when the average salary is $120,000, $130,000 a pop. You're talking about six figures to actually replace somebody and go out and recruit and go through the hiring process. That's important because when you give someone a chance who hasn't had a chance, they become fiercely loyal. We've had like zero attrition at Checker in eight years. We've had one wow. person, they actually got promoted in a better job at another company. Um, positive attrition. Positive attrition. We've never had anybody leave the company or quit who's formerly incarcerated. People are so fiercely loyal because they know out there in society, it's tough. And they know that to, to find a, a company that has a culture that actually embraces people's story. We have like employee resource groups dedicated to like people who've been formerly incarcerated. That's how embedded it is in the culture. And so not only does it help with attrition and PL, we also find at Checker that these folks promote faster because they work harder. They've now for the very first time been given the opportunity to have some vertical mobility up and down a career ladder. And these these folks work harder and longer hours than most employees that came out of a four-year university with a degree. And it's because they don't feel entitled. They feel like they have to hustle in a different type of way to prove their mettle, to prove their worth. And so it, it presents a, a tremendous value proposition for a business when you talk about productivity. It also does wonders for, for company culture. I can't understate this enough. When people are happy about where they work, when people are happy about working for a purpose-driven company, it increases your bottom line in ways that you can't even measure because you, you have less other employees who leave and you also attract employees. So I, I can't even tell you how many people, executives and all who say, I came to Checker because of Checker's mission of helping justice impacted get work. So we actually attract a lot of talent. The primary reason is not because Checker is the best background check company or here's another tech company. None of those are the reasons they say I came because I feel like I can do purpose-driven work with what I do every single day. So those are just a few of the business benefits that that we see not only at Checker, but other companies see these things too. I bet that also helps with time to fill open positions. I mean, you know, that that part of that cost of replacement, of course, is, you know, how long the Hi. position is open. And one of the things we've been hearing consistently from our guests is this idea of people being drawn to you so that in the war for talent, you know, or for hard to fill positions, it becomes a, a an advantage um, that that has got to translate to fewer days of open positions. It's definitely a differentiator. And, and, and to your point, like there is a war for talent, especially in the tech sector, where there's been some layoffs in the last six to nine months, but th there is a, a war for talent out there. And, and when you're out there competing for the best people to fill the positions, this kind of differentiator really helps. And, and you know, just so employers out there who are listening know, we never ask employers or even lower the bar for ourselves. We don't lower the bar for talent. Absolutely not. We hire best person for the job. But what we do ask is for folks to lower the barrier to entry. And if you lower the barrier and you look in non-traditional places, you'd be amazed at the gems and jewels you'll find of human possibility and potential. Okay. We are painting a very rosy picture, which is really exciting. And I love that we're kind of breaking some of these myths that people might, might hold on. I'm wondering if like a little 
reality check. Are there downsides? Are there risks? I mean, one of the things that struck me about retention is, does that kick in after, you know, six months, but that maybe you're going to lose more people in those first three or four months. But like, once you get them to say, I mean, what are the downsides? Like, what is the, what should people know? Uh, eyes wide open going in, if well, any. Well, I, I'll start by saying this in the tech sector, you can pull up any indicator from any HR publication, Forbes or wherever McKinsey attrition is about 25% average in the tech space. So when you look at it compared to that, you lose one out of four employees who've never been to prison or had a record. Churn is a very real thing. It's an expensive thing, right? Um, and a lot of that happens within the first year of employment. The same is going to hold true no matter what the population is, right? It is hiring a perfect art. Absolutely not. If it was like you and I could bottle that up and we'd be billionaires by now. Um, I think what, what we practice and what we teach other companies is to work with trusted community-based organization partners. So when you have an organization like The Last Mile, reputation is stellar or breakthrough reputation is stellar they work inside the prisons with folks they know their population when you call them up and say i'm looking to fill a certain amount of positions they know exactly who to go to they're going to give you their best and brightest because they also want to stay in business they also want to build long-term relationships so even though we all don't have expertise to go out there and know who's who what's what like who's full of bs who's like real that's why it's so important to work with community-based organizations who are boots on the ground in the community every single day, working with folks who exited the prison system, working with folks who are on probation, et cetera, because they know in most cases who is the real deal and who's not. And that's not to say that mistakes don't happen, but the mistakes are not what people's fear is. Like, you don't have to worry about your business. You come back tomorrow and your business is like, all your computers are gone. We don't see that happening anywhere in the country, no matter what sector. It's more or less, was this person reliable? Did they fall through? Did they have life circumstances that caused them to be less than, than what they possibly could be? I think those things are standard across any business with with any subset of human beings. And it's no different with justice impacted folks. One of the uh, things that I noted in the episode with Maria Kim and Red F and talking about, in general, enterprise workforce development um, uh, community-based organizations like you're talking about is those organizations provide ongoing safety net support for these individuals. And so it is like an insurance policy to um, source from their alumni uh, because those those organizations continue to walk beside them. And if you do find yourself, you know, or your employee in, in trouble, you can call them and they will help. They will help. Hundred percent, especially when it comes to wraparound services. So when you think about things like housing, childcare, things that most employers aren't set up to support with, those community-based organizations can support with those things and become great partners in when it comes to sourcing talent from this population. Tell us about the Checker Foundation. What do you do in that role, and what do you fund? Sure. So when they brought me on as a VP, they asked me would I be willing to set up the corporate foundation. And, and part of the reason they wanted to do that is because they took the pledge 1% and they pledge 1% of their equity, 1% of their product, 1% of their time, and 1% of their profit. And so we set up a corporate foundation because we wanted to support those organizations who were doing great workforce development work. That's our main lane. Reentry is like a, a wide chasm of a lot of different things. But we really think work, level wage work is the great equalizer. So we 
provide funds to groups like The Last Mile and others across the country who were specifically focused on providing this population with workforce skill development, resume building, interview processes, personal development, and who know how to build relationships with employers to be able to get these people actually placed into jobs where they can earn livable wage. And when we see that happening, we see low, low, low single digit recidivism when the rest of the country is 65, 70, over 10 years, 80%, right? It just, it's just the great equalizer. So many things happen positive when a person is able to take a paycheck, paycheck home and pay rent. And I really love it as a sort of strategic complement to the core business of Checker and appreciate that 1% pledge. We'll have to um, dig into that on a, on a future episode as, uh, as a great organization um, that allows founders to sort of pledge up front uh, 1% of their equity, even when it's not worth anything, with the idea that someday it will be. And Checker certainly is a unicorn at this point, right? Valued over a billion dollars. And uh, and that's a meaningful commitment. So, five five uh, billion. Don't, uh, we want other Sorry, four? sorry. Give it, <laughs> give it credit. That's, that's amazing. Well, so for all the entrepreneurs and business people listening today who might be sort of curious, but at the very beginning of their journey, um, we like to talk about the next right thing. What is the next right thing, the small but meaningful step that they can take to implement some of these ideas in their own business starting right now? Sure. Well, the, the, I get asked that question a lot, Sharon. The first thing I say is the first thing we all have to do as humans is we have to look in the mirror and we have to unpack some of our bias that we bring to the table because it's not actually the background check that's the issue, right? People's past and people's circumstances are what they are. It's the narrative we tell ourselves about that information that we take in. So the first thing we have to do is say, okay, wait a minute, I need to be more open and understanding with this particular human being to get some understanding and education about what has happened in this person's life, what life experience did this person have, what caused some of these different things to happen and bring an objective whole self to that process. Once you do that, now all of a sudden you can look at humans for face value and provide the type of opportunity and space to let people soar, thrive, et cetera, and so forth. The second thing I tell people to do is be open to learning about the criminal justice system and understand that in America, there's 44,000 collateral consequences that prevent men and women from being able to rebuild their lives. Most of those are employment related for occupational licensing and other things that, that provide restrictions. And so under, when you understand the barriers, every time I explain the barriers to CEOs, the first thing they say is, how can I help? I never knew this problem existed. So being educated and being open to these conversations and then looking for the best in human potential. And I think Every CEO, every CHRO wants to find the best talent and the best in human potential. And I think if we do that, we can go a long way to demystifying this narrative of this scarlet letter that we've created in this country. Amazing. Start with the man in the mirror. Thank you so uh, much for being my guest. And Ken, where can people find you to learn more and get started? Sure. People can find me at Ken.Oliver at C-H-E-C-K-R dot com. As part of our social impact mission, we teach companies all across the country on how to become fair chance employers. So if you have any of your listeners who would like to learn how they can become a fair chance employer, reach out to me and we'll, we'll work with them. That's an amazing free resource. Thank you. Appreciate you. Thank you all for listening. You can find more resources 
that Ken mentioned and learn more about Fair Chance Hiring at theintegratedlife.com. This is Social Responsible Business. I'm your host, Sharon Schneider. See you next time. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Socially Responsible Business with Sharon Schneider. We hope we've given you some ideas of how your business can succeed while being a force for good. Until we talk again, visit www.theintegratedlife.com for resources to take a small but meaningful step today.